NASA's innovations that benefit you and all of us, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. NASA's Dan Lochney is back with a big bag full of amazing inventions and tools created for space that have been put to work down here on the pale blue dot. Dan will share highlights from the agency's brand new Spinoff 21 collection that features life-saving hospital ventilators, a new technique for removing toxic waste from water, and a way to remove toxic aromas from our shoes, along with much, much more. Then Bruce Betts will spin on down from orbit with some surprising facts about past Mars missions, a preview of the night sky, and a new space trivia contest. Mars's atmosphere is so thin, I'm leaving space for your line here, it's so thin that if you look straight up from the surface, you see stars and the black of space, even at local noon. That space fact tops the February 26 edition of The Downlink, our weekly newsletter. It's followed by a reminder that we have captured all the drama of the Perseverance landing at planetary.org. And have you seen the spectacular panorama captured by Mascam Z? Wow! The launch of NASA's double asteroid redirection test, or DART mission, has been delayed thanks in part to the darn pandemic. It's now expected to leave Earth between November of this year and February of 2022, with its impactful arrival at asteroid Didymos and its small companion expected in September of next year. We've got a great guide to this mission you'll also find at planetary.org. There's a new downlink every Friday. You can subscribe and get it in your mailbox for free. The Oxford Dictionary's first definition of spin-off is a byproduct or incidental result of a larger project. That's not bad, except that there's nothing incidental about the spin-offs that emerge from NASA. In fact, as you're about to hear from Daniel Lockney, sharing the technologies and solutions it develops has always been part of the space agency's mission. As NASA's technology transfer program executive, Dan Lockney's duties extend far beyond spin-offs, but it's the publication of the newest collection of these innovations in Spinoff 21 that made me want to talk with him again. Dan, I'm afraid it has been over 40 years since we last talked, which means a lot more innovative NASA technology has found its place around the world in research and in industry and elsewhere. It's really been too long, but uh, I'm happy to welcome you back. Welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be here. It's four years, but it feels just like yesterday. It's good to hear you again. It's great to be here. <laughs> it is nice uh, to be uh, uh, be able to pick up with another comfortable conversation. And as we were just talking about before we started recording, we can see each other now because of this improvement in the software that we're using. Probably some spinoff technology enabled this. I'm just guessing. You know, I don't know for certain, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, there's a lot of compression involved here, so data compression. I wouldn't be surprised. For the two or three people listening who've just returned from, you know, 50 years on Mars, give us a thumbnail sketch, please, of what spinoffs are and, and how they fit into NASA's mission. Absolutely. Happy to, to provide a, a quick overview. But we're going to have to go all the way back to 1958. <laughs> so I'll try to make it quick. When Congress created NASA, you know, 60 plus years ago, they had the foresight to write into our foundational legislation some instructions. Um, but I'm paraphrasing, but it's 
don't just let the technologies you develop for space application blast off the earth, uh, but make sure that they come back down here and benefit us in our everyday lives. We want some terrestrial applications. So for the past 60 plus years, every time NASA does something new, and, and we have a reputation for doing that, every time we do something new, we develop a new technology, innovation, concept, material, uh, chemical compound, some sort of advancement of the state of the art. My office takes a look at it and determines who else could use it and then what's the best way to get it to them. And we call that technology transfer. We've got a long history of this technology transfer. And, and when a company takes a NASA innovation and turns it into a product or service that benefits us here on Earth, we call that a spinoff. And it got named a spinoff back in the 1970s when television sitcom spinoffs were first becoming a thing. And the name has just stuck with us ever since. We've been recording these things again since we've been doing it since the 60s, been recording them ever since the 70s in our spinoff publication. And we've had thousands of examples of consumer goods, safety equipment, medical advances, industrial applications, new techniques for manufacturing that make our lives safer, more enjoyable and uh, make life here on Earth better. And we're going to talk about a few of those, uh, some that stood out for me and, and maybe some that might occur to you that uh, you might want to bring up as great examples. It is absolutely amazing to see the diversity of these spinoffs, of these technologies that have come out of developing, exploring space exploration. And as you know, I love to read the spinoff reports. You've changed the format this year. It has never looked better or been more fun to read. Thanks. We started this publication in the 70s, and it remained largely unchanged since 1976. And we would put out a, a big book once a year. And you, uh, my buddy Craig, and a few other folks are the only people I know who read it, like read it cover to cover. Because it's every year NASA puts out a 300-page book. And it's got this beautiful thud when it lands on a desk. And you go, here's all the cool stuff NASA did. I like this. And it's a, a thunk. And you go, there must be a lot in there. But, but what we realized is nobody's reading it cover to cover. I mean, nobody other than you and Craig um, are reading it cover <laughs> to cover. The way we consume information is digitally in short bursts. And we realized that publishing a book at the end of the year wouldn't be as valuable or as timely or as modern as you take advantage of social media publishing timely, relevant content. I know we're going to talk about Mars Perseverance. We, we published a Mars Perseverance story around the same time as the, uh, the mission was in the news versus the typical way of publishing, which we would do is wait till the end of the year and say, hey, remember this? And maybe people do, maybe they don't. We have increased our readership. Again, moving from a, a print publication once a year to a timely, agile, modern digital publication format, we've increased our readership by absurd numbers, you know, reaching millions of people versus, you know, tens of thousands. And the, the content's more timely. We're still making a physical book, although with this virtual environment we're in, there's, there's no real need for a physical book. There's no one in the warehouses to ship them, <laughs> but, but currently it looks like a PDF. And I agree, it's a gorgeous publication. Yeah, uh, it's it's neat. It's readable. It's, it's accessible. I, I think it's a, it's a good one. It's spinoff.nasa.gov. Thank you for that. And we'll bring that up again. And of course, we'll put that link on this week's show page that people can find at planetary.org slash radio. Yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of ebooks, so I'm OK with this. But there was something nice about it. I mean, it was it was coffee table material. Yeah. There is a map in the book 
that shows where these technologies are being developed and, and being put to use, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty much throughout the U.S., isn't it? It is. We have spinoff technology in all 50 states. One of the states that's been hardest for us to, to get technology developed in and commercialized in is Wyoming. Um, but I'm proud to say, I've learned some trivia recently, that we have more companies producing NASA spinoff technology in Wyoming than there are escalators in Wyoming. It turns out that the entire state, and I, I believe this is true. If it's not, this could be the, the one lie that I tell on your show today. Um, I, I believe what I've heard is that there are two pairs of escalators in the state. And we have three companies that have worked with us that are in the state of Wyoming. So I feel okay with that. I like that. I should mention also, I don't have to mention, but I will mention, there are four manufacturers of elevators, escalators, and moving sidewalks across the world. And why I know this and why it's interesting and to me and why I'm bringing it up is each one of those manufacturers uses a voltage controller device that NASA developed a little while back that regulates the amount of energy usage the electric motor is going to use according to how much load is on that motor. So without this device, an elevator or escalator would be operating as if it were under a full load, regardless of whether it were empty. It's called the NOLA device after Frank NOLA, who's the inventor at Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, who invented it. This mm -hmm. NOLA device saves energy in every elevator, every escalator, every moving sidewalk in the world built since the 1980s, including the two escalators in Wyoming. I'll be darned. And and what a great segue. <laughs> <laughs> Escalators was even more relevant than I thought it would be. I mentioned it's been a tough year. It's been a tough year for everybody, including everybody at NASA. But NASA has also responded to the pandemic. And this got, at least, you know, in, in my part of the country, uh, it got a lot of attention because JPL was involved with the development of, of ventilators. But I, I suspect, and in fact, it's documented in Spinoff 21, NASA's response went considerably beyond that. Yeah, so this this is I, so I love NASA and I love the space exploration and the advancing our understanding of the universe and our place in it and space and that it's just cool. But for me, it's and for my for my work, what really gets me excited is when it impacts us here on Earth and makes people's lives better. So if you think way back to to March of of last year, um, right when you know. The NBA canceled its season. Tom Hanks got sick and we all went home. Right when this got real for everybody and we were in the middle of a pandemic all of a sudden. A lot of us, you know, try to figure out how to make face masks and keep ourselves safe and hunker down and wash our hands as many times as we could. There's a handful of inventors at JPL who were watching the news and said, there's a shortage of ventilators. How hard could it be to make a ventilator? <laughs> <laughs> Most of us would, would have that passing thought and say, very hard. Um, yeah. They set about designing a ventilator that had fewer than 100 parts, and none of the parts were in the current needed supply chain for ventilators. Uh. So they wouldn't interrupt. It was a make my ventilator instead. It was make my ventilator also. It was a little bit of a simpler design than, than the ones that, they were, that were qualified for hospital use. But we needed them and we needed them fast. So they developed this ventilator. It took them a handful of weeks. They got emergency FDA clearance. And uh, within six weeks of, you know, the rest of us were figuring out, like, like to what extent do I wash my groceries? 
Um, <laughs> do, I, do, I, do I wash each grape or do I wash the whole bunch of them? These JPL inventors had developed this ventilator. Um, they applied for patent protection on it, but the patent protection wasn't the way you usually think of a patent as a defensive maneuver that prevents people from using it. Rather, it was a way to publish enabling documentation in a credible way uh, for the world to see. So they, they filed for patent protection and then gave free patent licenses along with um, manufacturing advice and um, guidance to dozens of companies all around the world to develop this emergency use ventilator. Phenomenal, fantastic story. It has since become NASA's most licensed technology to date. No 40 kidding. plus different companies using it. You know, I don't know that we will uh, cover a more impressive bit of technology transfer today or one that maybe, who knows, in the last year has saved more lives. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, don't, 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 don't forget, I did mention that uh, escalator thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> hey, that's pretty significant, though. Um, speaking of both JPL and the pandemic, as people begin to hear this program, it will have been just about two weeks since we saw Perseverance, that spectacular seven minutes of terror down to the surface of Mars. Had it not been for the pandemic, I'd probably have been there at Von Karman Auditorium. Instead, I was at home. That was okay. It was still thrilling. And then a couple of days later, we got the release of the maybe, and I've said this to a number of people, Maybe the most thrilling piece of video uh, that I have seen since Apollo 11, since I'm old and can remember that. I guess I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised to see that the ability to get that video of Perseverance actually getting down to the surface of Mars, setting foot on Mars, was also thanks to uh, technology transfer, to, uh, to spinoff technology. Yeah. It, it's also interesting that, that we've got this this ability to send this awesome video, these high data rates. But NASA has been doing this type of, well, let's call it remote work <laughs> for years. The most remote. We're, we're all getting used to it these days, you know, sitting in our homes, talking into these computers. But NASA has been doing this type of remote work for, uh, let's say, decades. Yeah. Um, it also contributes to things like telemedicine, which was the ability for us to keep our astronauts safe and and diagnosed and healthy from 200 miles away, that same um, ability and, and uh, type of communication is we're all doing it every day from our very homes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, not just the, the data rates and the video quality and the, um, that video of, of the Mars um, landing, but all the technologies on the Mars rovers and building on, on decades of, of the, the planetary exploration experience. I, I will add though, I'm probably the least rewarding person to talk to, the least rewarding NASA person to talk to about the excitement of the space missions. I see that video and I'm like, that's really neat. But because of the line of work I'm in, it's, but what else can it do? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We talk to those other people all the time. This is, this is, the, this is of course, exactly the angle that I was hoping to hear about from you. And, and that's the kind of thinking that we want to hear about. So I, I guess there is a circuit board, and it was uh, some of the technology that went into the creation of this kind of circuit board. I mean, I read about the company that is making use of this, Tempo Automation. Spinoff.nasa.gov. You can find 
all of this content. There's so much more. In fact, there's a there's a graphic in Spinoff 21 that goes across two pages, long skinny graphic that describes other technologies developed for Mars that are finding use back here on Earth. I, I want to bring up at least one more, and you are welcome to uh, bring up others. Uh, Honeybee Robotics, company that uh, we know really well. They're old friends of ours at the Planetary Society. They have worked on a drill that is also just reached Mars as part of the Perseverance rover and is something that um, I guess also relied on some of these technologies? Yeah, so Honeybee's been working with NASA and JPL on development of instrument tools and uh, uh, testing equipment for Mars missions for a long time. The interesting thing about this one, I'll describe it to the tool first though. It's, a, it's essentially a plug cutter. So instead of a drill where you drill a hole into something, you drill a circular shape around a plug or a little um, uh, a piece that would stick up, then would pop out a core sample. And then what you do it on Earth is you jam a screwdriver into it usually, and pop the thing out, and, and then you've got a jagged edge. And, and there's also potentially the, the introduction of contaminants, but not the biggest problem here on Earth because you can just take another one. But with our Mars sample, we're going to avoid contamination, and we want the cleanest possible cut we could get. So the honeybee core... Um, retrieval tool has a little piece at the bottom of it that allows us to get a clean edge on the plug that we're cutting out. So interesting in its own way. The cool part though, the phenomenal part though, is why we want a clean sample versus the, you know, we, we usually do like pulverize it on, on, on site and take a look at the, the components and send that information back. We want this clean, pure sample because this is the first time ever that we're having Mars samples returned to Earth, yeah. uh, which is phenomenal. We've sent rovers to the red planet, and we've sent spacecraft to the red planet for a while now. But nothing's ever come back. So this is going to be a, a clean core sample that's returning. And I'll admit that does get me kind of excited. The cleanest ever. I mean, the, everything that's gone into this, those, those tubes, the cleanest things humans have ever created— but you got to get the samples into them. And, right. and really, there's so much that is just fascinating to see how these technologies work in Spinoff 21. And and the way this one, yeah, breaks off this core so it can lift it out is fascinating. It's cool. So there's a lot of other technology that went into this Perseverance rover. As you mentioned, we've got a whole spread in the book. We've also got uh, this this most recent mission builds upon you know decades of other missions. We've got uh, uh, contaminant de uh, uh, detection um, technology for steering these uh, rovers around has also contributed to the development of hospital robots um, for pharmaceutical delivery. The technology could improve self-driving cars, low-maintenance wind turbines, medical advancements, new instruments and materials for uh, geological surveys here on Earth, the airbag material for the early earlier Mars missions, was not did not lead to the development of car airbags, but that that woven material was used in things like ballistic protection and um, uh, development of uh, high pressure canisters. You know, as you mentioned, the video quality, the improvement electronics, again, remote work. You know, talk about remote work. There's yeah. so many Mars technologies that will then have the ability to influence and improve our lives here on Earth. You know, there are a lot of us at the Planetary Society and a lot of our members who. Uh, think that exploring Mars is, is worthy for its own sake. But this, I hope, is reassuring to others out there who want to say, you know, yeah, but what's in it for me? 
Well, you're describing what's in it for us. I'll, I'll tell you kind of a fun, older Mars-related robotics spinoff. But the original team that was working on Rocky 7, which is this rover that, that you know, predates Spirit Opportunity, but that the ability to steer and control something, like a little robot, yeah. uh, that same team that developed the precursor to Spirit Opportunity later went on and formed a company called iRobot that makes this Roomba. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> this robotic no vacuum that runs around your house. And we claim through through that qualified list of, of history, of lineage, we do claim the robotic vacuum as a NASA spinoff of sorts. You know, I like to talk about, uh, I'm sure you've seen the movie The Martian, where uh, Mark Watney, Andy Weir's uh, Martian, uh, brings uh, the Sojourner uh, rover, the first uh, rover on Mars, back to his habitat, and it follows him around or, or roams around inside his habitat. Never thought of it, but yeah, if he'd put a vacuum cleaner on there, he'd have had a Roomba. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Is your head spinning? Well, don't slow down because I'll be back in moments with NASA's Dan Lockney and even more spinoffs. This is Planetary Radio. Planetary Radio is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you enjoy our show, if you believe in the mission of the Planetary Society, Advancing Space Exploration, I hope you will join us. We need 500 new members by March 5th to hit our goal. Your membership will power our core initiatives, exploring new worlds, finding life, and defending our planet from asteroid threats. Sign up today at planetary.org slash join2021, and you'll receive an official membership t-shirt featuring the lovely worlds of our solar system. That's planetary.org slash join2021. Thanks. Let me switch gears a little bit here. The first time I ever heard of fuel cells, had no idea what they were as a kid, but I heard about them in connection with, I forget whether it was Gemini or Apollo that first used them. Now, of course, we've got cars that I can see on the California freeways that are running on fuel cells. One of the entries in Spinoff 21 talked about improved fuel cells, which are down at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, the interesting thing with this one is it dates back to the space shuttle and the space shuttle fuel cells. And some engineers at Johnson Space Center in Houston replaced a mechanical component in our fuel cells with a passive nozzle. And the advantage was, you know, mechanical components have a tendency to be failure points, they'll break. So we reduced that uh, uh, problem. Uh, also, when you've got a mechanical component and you require electricity to run it or fuel to run it, you're a, a drag on the fuel you're trying to develop. <laughs> so if, you, if the machine has to run itself also, uh, that, that uh, reduces its efficiency. Uh, so we developed this technique for making more efficient more reliable fuel cells. And we found applications for them in deep sea drilling and in wells. And the way they um, used to run power lines to these things was above water. And you can imagine, you know, just just as any time you run an extension cord to someplace, you know, <laughs> you're introducing some risk there, especially if you go lawnmower perhaps. So we had these lines that were going across the water and they, they had the tendency to create problems. Um, so putting them underneath underneath the water actually uh, reduced the, the opportunities for um, them to be damaged. Additionally, we've got these underwater fuel cells, and they can serve as charging ports, much like your Roomba charging port. They can serve as charging ports 
for underwater robots that are patrolling and working the um, uh, the web. It just goes on and on. You got to talk about one that came out of the Kennedy Space Center, another brilliant NASA engineer named Jackie Quinn, who had an idea that I, I guess she began to work with when she grabbed some drinking straws from the uh, employee cafeteria. Jackie Quinn is one of our nation's treasures. She is in the Inventors Hall of Fame. She has made some incredible advancements. So Kennedy Space Center, where we do all our, our space launches, launch and space is kind of a heavy industrial application and it, it has the potential to create some contaminants. There's fuel and there's cleaning solvents. There's also, we've been working there for decades, but Kennedy Space Center also is a nature reserve. It's a wildlife reserve. And there are you know some species of birds that only live there. Um, so we need to be really careful with this land and, and preserve it. At the same time, we're doing these heavy industrial applications. Jackie Quinn is one of our environmental engineers there working on techniques and ways to, to make sure that we're good stewards of that land. And she's developed uh, groundwater decontaminant solutions that used to be prior to the, um, the ventilator, used to be our most licensed, most prolific spinoff of all time, cleaning up super fun sites around the country. So recently, her newest um, advancement is this technique for removing solvents from um, water, not groundwater, just like underneath rivers and such. The way she discovered it was plastic, specific certain plastics have the tendency and ability to absorb oils and other contaminants. She had the idea again, while, as you mentioned, looking at a handful of drinking straws and thinking there ought to be a better use for these. Um, so she made essentially larger drinking straws and developed these things called ecospheres that are essentially plastic tubes that are hollow. You shove them into the ground and they leach up all of the oil and contaminants in a, say, river, lake, pond bed and become filled with these nasty oils and such. And then you pull them out and you've essentially cleaned the water. And it really is as simple as plastic and tubing, like a drinking straw. We've since licensed it to a company called Ecospheres. They have sites all around the world at this point where they're deploying this technology. And the last I talked to them, they were actually working on a Netflix special showing how their company became a startup and took this technology and they're out cleaning the water. And they have a great story to tell. And, and hopefully that, that, gets, that actually gets aired. That'll be a neat story. There is a selfish angle to this for me, because I saw in Spinoff 21 that one of the pilot projects where they're using this technology is right here in my hometown, San Diego, the port of San Diego. I kayak out there. So uh, thank you, guys. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah there's, a, um, there's a little creek in Maryland that I used to like to sail to, and it was this little out-of-the-way spot where we could pull anchor and uh, drop anchor and go swimming. Since looked it up on an EPA website, discovered that you know according to the, the the rankings of you know A through F, like report card rankings, this little creek had an F. We didn't realize that it was sandwiched between two um, steel mills, um, and I'm hoping <laughs> that, that because it's such a nice swimming spot, that that also gets uh, these eco spear decontaminant spears. It, they seem so simple. The other, the other neat thing about this company is when they deploy them all around the world. They train local folks how to unroll them, how to deploy them, 
and uh, create jobs wherever they go. All around, nothing wrong with this story. And you make me think that this probably has applications or could have applications because it's a fairly simple technology that uh, maybe in the third world, where there certainly are huge uh, pollution problems, just like everywhere else around the world, uh, that this, you know, might be something that could be adopted by people without a, a huge amount of training or sophistication. Speaking of pollution and also Kennedy Space Center, uh, we're working on something else here that's kind of neat. And it's it's not ready for spinoff yet in that it's not yet a product that's available, but it's something that's being worked on. And it stems back to our desire for in-situ resource utilization. So when we go to the moon, for example, we don't want to, we won't be able to, to bring all the construction materials we need in order to create a habitat. You know, we're not going to ship up you know, two by fours and Tyvek and, and all the material you need to make to make a one bedroom house. Um, so if we can use as much material that we find on site as possible, we will. And one of the things we're looking at doing is creating from the lunar regolith, the soil on the moon, bricks. Mm. And, but we need something to, to, to hold it together. We need an adhesive, some sort of compound that, that, that we can work with. And one of the things we're going to be generating there is plastic trash um, from food containers and just also anytime you unwrap something. We, we all have this experience and you've got plastic, you don't have to do with it. If we could melt plastic or somehow change it, mix it with the regolith and use that to form building bricks, that would be phenomenal. We, we could make our, our lunar igloo. But in order to, to test that, we need to you know, first do it here on Earth. And at Kennedy Space Center, we're working with the Florida League of Cities to use two things that they have an excess of in Florida. First, plastic bottles. And second, sand. And if we can mix sand and plastic bottles together and create a building material, we could then use that here on Earth. But we're also discovering that we could build um, concrete and bricks. So what we're currently looking at doing is replacing sidewalks in Florida with a sand and recycled plastic bottle concoction. Huh. Okay. You know, it strikes me that maybe that has some... Uh advantages in terms of climate change as well, because concrete is a major source of, uh, of carbon, uh, uh, carbon pollution uh, in the atmosphere. Fascinating. Um, there's another kind of uh, pollution, much more <laughs> personal pollution. I think you know where I'm going. Tell us about Zorpads. I'm glad you brought it up. Somebody had to. <laughs> um, one of the applications for this air cleaning device is um, in shoe insole inserts. <laughs> what one of my favorite things to ask the astronauts who come back from the International Space Station, just because I don't think anyone asks them this, is what does it smell like? <laughs> and to, to a person, they always say, "You wish you could open a window. <laughs> you, you could imagine you." Yeah. One of the, the beauties of space that we don't really talk about, and, and thankfully, apparently, your your nose gets congested when you're in the microgravity environment. But you could imagine, you know people living nonstop in the same closed space forever. We got to clean the air. And one of the ways that we do that is, is through this carbon fiber material, same thing you'd find in your Brita filter or same thing you find in your um, uh, home air purifier, but, but an activated carbon filter. And the way usually these things are made is you've got some sort of substrate, some sort of filter, and you apply the carbon to it. So NASA worked with the company to test a material we're now using in space and that has become Zorpods, where the material itself is solid carbon filter rather than adding it to the, to the surface. 
And one of the things it does, in addition to purifying the air, making it smell a little better, in space and in these closed environments of, say, a home, you've got a lot of off-gassing of materials. You've got glues, you've got paints, you've got plastics, you've got all these non-natural materials that, that, you know, if you ever walk into a new building that's got the formaldehyde uh, from the, the carpeting and the, the glue and all of your eyes start to burn. It's called sick building syndrome. And interestingly, back in the 1970s, we first realized this. We built this down at Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. We built this um, uh, simulated Skylab. And the astronauts would, or the, the crews would walk into it. And you were to test, see what it's like to live in this little box for a little while. They would walk in and get headaches immediately. Like, well, what's going on in here? And we had this, this inventor, uh, John Wolverton, who said, it's my theory that plants clean the air. And the problem is that we've got these, all of these, all of this outgassing. But if we introduce something simple like a plant, it might absorb some of that material. And you're telling me, yeah, we know plants clean the air. What I'm telling you is we didn't know that for certain until NASA discovered it and tested it in the 1970s. And it was actually a partnership with the American House Plant Association to test and prove that with definitive um, uh, proof that plants will clean this stuff out of the air. So two things that are interesting to me about this. In addition to that, it's just a cool story. One is it's not the leaves. It's largely the roots that clean the air. Oh, no kidding. Who knew? Yeah. Um, now everybody knows. Um, the other thing that I found interesting about this is the current plants that you find for sale at your garden store, your big box um, hardware convenience store, those weren't selected necessarily because they're the best for your um, uh, lighting conditions. Those were chosen and down-selected from the NASA research in the 1970s as the ones that clean the air the best. So you've got these common plants that live in your house, the rhododendron, the Norfolk pine, the different ferns. Um, I'm trying to look around at my house plants, see if I can name another one. Philodendron. <laughs> um, those were chosen and selected because they're the best at cleaning the air. Fascinating. Again, I keep using that word because it's so appropriate. Um, we could go on and on. There are many, many other examples uh, that we could talk about in Spinoff 21. And I want to get to the future because that's how this uh, edition uh, of Spinoff ends. But before we do that, are there any other standouts, you know, ones that you would be uh, disappointed if we if we didn't talk about them? You know, I have trouble picking a favorite. It's like asking a mother to pick her favorite. And unless unless you're my mother, it becomes very <laughs> difficult to make that type of decision. We have thousands of them. I. I tend to like the ones that are unexpected that you, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't realize necessarily. So when you brought up the future, there are certain things that we know we're going to get out of space exploration. In addition to, of course, the expanding of our understanding of the universe and our place in it, <laughs> we're going to get advances in medical technologies. We're going to get newer, lighter composites and materials. We're going to get advances in energy storage and delivery systems, better batteries, we're going to have cleaner air. We're going to have cleaner water. All these things that we need to live in space. It's the weird stuff that I find interesting, though. The things you wouldn't expect. Uh, like I mentioned, the plants or the escalators um, or the, the camera in your cell phone is a NASA technology. Uh, we're an infant formula. A, we did an experiment in growing algae as a food source for long-duration space flight and discovered for the first time that the omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids that are important to the development of the brain, the eyes, 
in the spinal column and the, those, all those um, uh, important fatty tissues. We thought it existed only in fish. It turns out it comes from algae. Um, and we discovered that and then we were since able through that discovery to synthesize it, produce it and, and incorporate it into a lot of different food materials. And previously it had been found in fish and human breast milk. Um, mm. And as a nutritional supplement, if you want to get it in say infant formula, before you realize it comes from the algae, you had to add, had to add fish to it. Yeah, the choice was to either miss this nutrient or have fishy baby food. Um, so now NASA developed a, a, developed an understanding of this. The, the company that that is adding omega three, omega six fatty acids to all your your groceries. Uh, there's one company that's a multi billion dollar corporation at this point. And anytime you see now with omega six, omega three added to it, unless it has a fish odor, it's NASA. Uh, so, so it's that kind of weird, unexpected, no fooling stuff that I find exciting. You'd ask about the future. There's a couple of things at the end of the spinoff book that I think are, are worth noting. There's some of the nerdy, deep, deep science stuff you'd expect us to be doing. Um, but at Johnson Space Center, they've also, they, they've, this is just captures the imagination, a grip-assisted glove. Um, so I'm thinking about Darth Vader. You know how he would like pick people up by the throat. You don't want to do that with it, but, but you could if you were inclined, I suppose. And Darth Vader. Um, but the the real cool application is for um, routine factory type work where you're doing the same thing over and over again, or increasing just your your grip. But it's also against medical applications with with folks that maybe um, have lost strength in their hands through arthritis or or some other condition. We've also at Kennedy Space Center, we're trying to grow plants for space for eating. So you mentioned Mark Watney in the, the Martian movie. Up until very recently, we we're growing plants in space, but the astronauts weren't supposed to eat them. They were considered like experiments. It was just two years ago, the first time they ate some lettuce that they'd grown in space. But we're not, we're not farming yet. Um, so, but we are developing at Kennedy this, these cool um, giant gardens for how you can grow fruit and vegetables in space. And it's got applications here on earth, for things like those cool vertical walls that you see in buildings that, that again, help with the off-gassing um, or um, vertical uh, vegetable gardens in dense areas. That's such a cool application. And then another one we're, we're working with that out of uh, Ames Research Center in California is um, software traffic management for drones. I'll just float that one out there and you can imagine, well, why would you need traffic management for, for drones? Well, there could be a bunch of them going different places, doing different things. And that's, that's kind of this weird version of the future that we're probably running into pretty soon, but it's, it's <laughs> right now it's the stuff of science fiction. But not far off, maybe, no. from what we hear from places like Amazon. I love this stuff. You can probably tell. It seems you do too. Yeah, I, um, I really do. I, I get fascinated. And again, I, I mentioned I'm not the most rewarding person like I, I was to talk to for the, the NASA engineers to talk to. I was, chat with some folks who developed a um, technique for with a low voltage, very little energy to vibrate the dust off of solar panels for Mars missions. Oh, so uh -huh. it, it, you're relying on these solar panels and if they get covered in dust, you can't get the sun to them. You run out of power. Um, so the ability to keep these missions going even longer, delivering great science and, and setting back these great images is just phenomenal. And it's solving this problem that we've got. And they're describing this to me and I'm thinking, could you put it on a car and you never have to wash your car again? Or <laughs> what you put it on windows, you can have a whole skyscraper. You run this thing through it and you, you 
have windows clean forever. And they're looking at me like, do you, you just don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I love this work. I love it. I'm just thinking of uh, the conversation I had with, um, actually, it'll be airing next week, about Insight and how they're waiting for one of these dust devils to come along and get rid of that dust, uh, as used to happen with Spirit and Opportunity. And, you know, who knows, maybe someday they'll just uh, flick on the the, uh, little vibrator and uh, they won't have to wait for the weather on Mars to uh, to be right for their spacecraft. Terrific stuff, Dan. I, I love it all. And, you know, for those people out there, I think it's a tiny minority in the audience for this show who don't feel the romance, the wonder, the passion, beauty, and joy, the PB&J, as our boss says, of space exploration. They really ought to be able to look at the kind of stuff that you guys document and say, you know what? This is a pretty good investment. I would hope so. I would also add, since since we're dealing with a tech-savvy audience here, that NASA has a large portfolio of technology available for people to use. We have over a thousand patents available for license. If you're a startup company, there's no upfront fee for licensing. If you're not a startup company, there's generally a nominal fee, just a couple dollars, and it goes to the inventor. Uh, we're not recouping the costs for our missions. <laughs> you know, the taxpayers already pay for that. We're, we're, this is an incentive uh, for the inventors. And we have a free software portfolio. We have over a thousand codes that are available for free for the public to use and download. Software.nasa.gov, technology.nasa.gov. We are still inventing technology constantly. Um, We're one of the most inventive organizations in the federal government. And uh, it's available to you. So maybe you'd like to make the next spinoff. Give me those websites once again, and we will again put those on the page. The technology.nasa.gov is the parent page, and that's you can find everything there. But the two subsets I mentioned are software.nasa.gov and then, of course, spinoff.nasa.gov. Dan, it has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much once again for taking us into the world of spinoffs. And congratulations on the publication of Spinoff 21. I highly recommend it. It ought to be a bestseller, except that it's free. Uh, and uh, it's waiting out there for everybody to take a look at on the net. Uh, keep up the great work, and uh, thanks for sharing it with us. Sure. Thanks, Matt, and, and thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Dan Lockney, he is the Technology Transfer Program Executive at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., and therefore oversees the publication of uh, Spinoff, which has been happening since the 1970s, Spinoff 21, Available right now on a computer or a device near you. Here comes Bruce and What's Up. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Any spinoffs, uh, spinoffs, uh, useful technologies or innovations uh, come out of uh, LightSail? Well, two things. One, the spacecraft does uh, spin on occasion. <laughs> Not a very good spinoff. And then not in the sense uh, that you've just been discussing, but in the sense of feeding forward to future solar sailing missions, our information that we're learning, we're working particularly with the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout from NASA and uh, now Solar Cruiser. It's a feed-forward technology more than a spinoff. Sounds good to me. How about the night sky? Spin us a yarn. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a planet named Mars, <laughs> and it began to approach the glowing star that was its evil twin called Aldebaran. 
in the land of Taurus, and nearby was a was a nursery where little baby stars that weren't so little were being born, called the Pleiades. And they're all in the. <laughs> How's that yarn? Is it, it? Does this have a happy ending? <laughs> yes, the happy ending is that you go out in the e- evening in the next couple weeks, you can see Mars near Aldebaran getting closer over the next week or two. And uh, they both look very similar in reddish. And if you look uh, on the other side of Mars, using binoculars is a great idea for this. Check out the Pleiades star cluster, uh, where baby born stars are being born in their little nursery. Anyway, uh, check out the Pleiades star cluster. And don't forget, Pleiades in Japanese are called Subaru. So that's why their symbol is stars. Pre-dawn. We're going to the pre-dawn. You just threw me with the yarn. I was thinking of knitting. It was weird. Uh, in the pre-dawn, but you did great. That was a nice little story. We're finally picking up some planets in the pre-dawn, uh, but they're still very low down to the horizon in the pre-dawn east. You've got bright Jupiter and uh, Saturn above that looking yellowish, and you might be able to pick up Mercury near and then eventually below in the next few days uh, below Jupiter. But it's going to be tough. Want to use binoculars. Uh, make sure the sun hasn't risen when you do that. Jupiter and Saturn will be visiting with us for the next several months. So say hi when you get a chance. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1969 that the Apollo 9 mission was flown in Earth orbit with the first flight of the lunar module flying free and uh, including uh, our planetary defense ally, Rusty Schweikert. It was good. Led to other stuff. I don't know if you've heard of the Apollo program, Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was uh, Paul McCartney's band after Wings, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I believe they were called Voyager. In 1979, Voyager 1 <laughs> flew by Jupiter and through the Jupiter system, giving us amazing imagery of the system. Yeah. Okay, we move on before we can think of any more bad jokes, uh, although I'm sure you'll try. We move on to random space fact. So right now, I mentioned this recently, there are eight working orbiters at Mars, but there are also eight non-working orbiters at Mars, at least probably. They're not communicating, but uh, probably eight. So it's eight and eight right now. Uh, in terms of working, non-working orbiters at Mars. I'll be darned. I had no idea. So as far as we know, eight uh, that are still above the red planet. Yes. Viking 1 and 2 orbiters, Mariner 9, Mars Global Surveyor, Mars 2, 3, and 5, and Phobos 2, not in chronological order. I'll be gosh darned. Okay. (laughs) On to the contest. Just still stuck on gosh darned. I asked you in a slightly tricky but not that tricky way. How many and which space agencies had their first Mars orbiter reach Mars and operate in Mars orbit? How'd we do, Matt? This threw some people. We got two agencies. We got four agencies. But Bruce, wily quiz master that he is, was looking for a different number. How many did you want and and which agencies were you thinking of? I wanted uh, pi rounded to the nearest nearest integer, so that'd be three, three, which were the recent United Arab Emirates, 
and the European Space Agency and the Indian Space Research Organization. I'm sure we threw people some on, uh, for example, China, yeah. because China's first orbiter on the Phobos Russian was on the Fro- Russian Phobos sample return mission, which failed in Earth orbit, and that was Yinghao One. Apologize for the pronunciation. So their first attempt at an orbiter failed. So those are the three. And also, you may wonder about the U.S. I don't know, but Mariner 8 was actually the first attempt, and its twin craft, Mariner 9, launched uh, in the same opportunity and succeeded. But Mariner 8 failed. Our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, uh, he restated this correct answer uh, in verse, of course. ESA was the first to get an orbiter, first try, around the planet Mars. That's sitting up there in the sky. India was second to the list, as you can see, and now we've had another. That is MBRSC, which is the UAE Space Agency. Thank you, Dave. We also, from Chris Mills in Virginia, he brought to our attention that old Teddy Roosevelt quote about uh, getting credit for those, giving credit to those who fail and f- again and again, but keep getting back up and trying again. And then Chris says, or, or maybe that was Rocky? <laughs> That's funny. That's exactly what I was going to say. And here is our winner, longtime listener, first-time winner. Congratulations, Andreas Ospina in Colombia, down in South America, of course, who said, yeah, three space agencies, first uh, Mars orbiters with successful outcomes, and he got them all correct. Andreas, it's, it's been a long wait. I know. I hope it was worthwhile. You are going to be receiving your own Planetary Society rubber asteroid. So, uh, yeah, again, congratulations. Most excellent. Moving on to this week's question, stick with me here, of the spacecraft, which used Venus for a gravity assist maneuver. Which went farthest outwards in the solar system? So they used Venus for gravity assist. Uh, Which of those went farthest out in the solar system? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Okay, people, you've got this one, right? You have until Wednesday, March 10th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the uh, the answer for this one. We will have for the winner, chosen by random.org, of course, a Planetary Society rubber asteroid, but also uh, a pretty cool new book for kids uh, from Random House Books for Young Readers. It is The Lion of Mars by... Uh, the award-winning, best-selling children's author, Jennifer Holm. It, it's sort of targeting uh, grades three to seven, although I think, yeah, right up through eight. Heck, I, I read it. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's about a kid who uh, grows up in, a, in basically a colony on Mars, and uh, it's, it's pretty fun to read. That's it. I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about whether you should circle multiple times before lying down. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Yet another spinoff from the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its innovative members. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro. 